In service and solidarity, my name is Ahmad Al-Nasir. This is your PBHA podcast. This summer was truly one for the history books. After a COVID-19 pandemic that shut down Harvard and brought all of us back to our homes, working from home and learning from home, we thought things could not get much worse. On May 28th, the unlawful killing of George Floyd ignited a civil rights movement previously unseen since the 1960s. People were fighting for social justice, people were fighting to unmask the white supremacist culture that pervades the police department, and people were fighting, most importantly, to get politicians to defund the police in favor of more community organizing and community programs to further support the people. For the record, PBHA stands for social justice. That is in our mission statement, and I just want to say that we unequivocally believe Black Lives Matter. And we are side by side with all the activists fighting in this push for civil rights. This summer, SUP, the Summer Urban Program, which is PBHA's long-running summer program, had to also run virtually in 11 different sites, each with student needs that were exacerbated due to COVID-19 and working from home. PBHA, thankfully, was able to deliver Chromebooks, deliver school supplies, deliver materials in order to allow further push in education and, most importantly, allow students to still have a successful summer despite all the challenges that the world was throwing at them. So as a result, this summer was definitely one that was very busy. PBHA also launched their So You Want to Be an Anti-Racist series where we were able to tackle these tough conversations and understand where they come from and how we can be better as allies and as fighters for social justice. This podcast episode is a special one because not only will we be talking to directors of sub-programs, we're also going to be talking to Queen Cheyenne Wade, who is a community organizer in Cambridge, who is also fighting since, since way earlier than June to fight for social justice. We hope that you enjoy. Right now, I will sit with the directors of two camps. Hi, my name is Dayton Campbell. I'm with Franklin IO, and this is my third summer actually um, being with Franklin IO. Uh, and I'm and I was super excited and had a great summer this time with the kids, and it was great seeing a lot of familiar faces. Hi, I'm Sajin. I'm one of the directors for FIO as well. I also had a great summer. It was incredible to be able to connect with these kids over Zoom in a way that's never been done before. It was something I'll always remember. What attracted me the last time I was at Franklin as well as this summer, coming back for a, a third summer, was the kids and the connections you were able to make. Um, initially, I don't, you don't necessarily know what you're getting into, but the kids are so inviting and it's such a strong community, especially at Franklin, that um, it's hard to kind of remove yourself from that space. And like, it's constantly a thing where you wanna go back and engage with those kids and build upon the growth that you experience as well as they experienced kind of together in your previous summers. I decided to come back because last summer was honestly the most impactful thing I've ever done. The way you were able to connect with the kids, um, the way that you kind of reflected and were able to see how you grew as a teacher, as a leader in the classroom, and how the kids grew and how you were able to help them do that. I I wanted to take on a bigger role as a director because um, of the impactful work I was able to do as an SE. Imagination of the kids really didn't let Zoom stopped them. I uh, still did a, a Lion King impersonation, the Mufasa scene with one of the kids off their bunk bed through Zoom, uh, which was really silly and fun. Um, but they, they absolutely did not let the virtual aspect stop their imaginations, which was inspired. We had a thing called cafeteria time where counselors spent time with the campers just on more of like uh, a fun, get to know you type of level. and. In those moments, it was really cool to engage with them and just hear what they had to say, how their day's been going, and things of that nature. There was one 
instance where they were playing Fortnite during cafeteria time because it's more of a free space. Um, the game is still downloaded on my um, PlayStation, so I got to engage with the kids in that way. They invited me and they were so happy to see that I was on playing with them. And it's like, although we do a lot of different ways of engagement, it's always interesting to see how they constantly want us to be a part of their community and engage with them kind of at every level. My hope is first and foremost that they took away that they can do anything really in the scope that like anything is possible. We constantly mention to them like, like this virtual camp is new ground, it's new space for us. And we appreciate them for helping make this possible. And the fact that we were able to do something uh, new and unique should demonstrate to them that like anything that they kind of set out to do or put their like minds to do, they're capable and more than capable of doing. So that was kind of the energy I think that we were pushing for, for our campers this summer. They were still able to learn, play, and, and thrive this summer. I truly believe that that, that campers uh, thrive this summer. We, we were able to provide them with programming that um, allowed them to to really excel in, in whatever they, they were learning about, whatever they were doing, whether that be math, English, social justice in some of our classes. They, they were really able to um, take on new meanings and, and even despite many of the challenges they face. Um, hi, my name is Jess. Um, I'm a rising junior at Boston University. Um, this is actually my first sub-summer. Alan, I am a rising junior at Harvard. Um, this is my second sub-summer. Uh, two summers ago, I was also an SC with Chad. I think I first heard about sub through a friend um, who basically grew up with sub. Um, and, you know, they told me about this great opportunity to work with kids, especially growing up in Chinatown. Um, I never really got to do Chad. It was really nice to be able to be a part of this community um, that is so um, prominent in Chinatown. I think my involvement with like PBHA, public service in general, started my freshman year when I joined Chinatown After School, which is a term time program, uh, kind of on a whim. I just wanted to practice my Chinese, but it turned into something I loved and that I liked a lot more than the classes I was taking at the time. So I joined Chad uh, as an SC again as a whim. And it was like, just as our, you know, our, as our uh, pub material says, the hardest summer I ever loved. Like it was really incredible. And all I wanted to do was come back. So unfortunately last year I wasn't able to come back, but this year I got to I think what really drew me to being a director specifically um, was sort of the amount of responsibility and leadership you have to do as a college student, which I don't think many college students around the around the states get to do. Running a whole program, communicating directly with parents, it's really a challenge and um, a challenge that I really loved. One thing that really stuck out to me was actually from yesterday. Um, I believe during lunchtime we have sort of social time where kids, campers can optionally come join us, the directors to like hang out, play some games. Um, and some campers joined and they were asking like, why is camp shorter this year? Because usually it's seven weeks long. This year we decided on five weeks, um, you know, for various reasons of you know, Zoom fatigue and uh, logistics and online camp, etc. cetera. Uh, and I was trying to explain it to the kids, um, but they weren't really having it because they were like, wow, like we really want more camp this year. Like we wish, wish camp wasn't ending tomorrow. And that was really a moment for me because I think a lot of the time online, it can be easy to get discouraged, you know, kids don't turn their cameras on or maybe they're not engaged for a day but it's very rarely like entirely our fault right like uh, there's a lot else going on right now so just knowing that kids were just like the camp was a joy for them was such a joy for me. I'm really hoping that like with all the resources that the SEs and ACs um, from the curriculum that they brought that they um, that the kids keep um, using those resources and also going out and finding their own resources. One of our senior counselor James introduced a music lab um, to the campers and I think now like all all the campers in our camp basically use the music lab and create different beats um, for their projects and just to showcase to, uh, one another as well so I'm really hoping that they all um, keep using all the materials that um, we delivered to them as well and all the resources that the SCs and JCs have shared with them. I would say for all of our campers as a whole, I really hope they kind of took away a sense of sort of exploration and curiosity and like feeling like there aren't boundaries on their learning even if they're stuck at home. Um, I think that's 
one sort of mental thing that we had to overcome before we started online camp of like, is that even possible? Like, would kids even like doing this sort of thing online, right? And like that sort of being the default mindset into like, what can we do and more of a positive uh, mindset. Um, and I'm hoping like the kids, maybe not on that deep of a level for all of them, but just for some of them, like taking a more optimistic mindset and like more generally curious and open to the world mindset, I guess, to their learning moving forward. It's always nice to hear PBHA directors talk about how much they love their programs. And I'm sure all of you felt as warmly as I did getting to listen both to FIO's directors and Chad's directors. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit and interview Queen Cheyenne Wade as she talks about her work in as a community organizer and as an activist in Cambridge. We hope you enjoy. And um, so Queen, Queen Cheyenne, both. Yeah, Queen Cheyenne is fine. Yeah, technically my full name is Queen Cheyenne, but over the years, <laughs> my name is kind of in different spaces been chopped in my own right and other people's um but yeah queen cheyenne is usually how i introduce myself it's my name given to me by my parents and yeah i've been a, a cambridge resident my whole life i use the she her pronouns family has been here for a couple of generations um, in the black and brown community i am an organizer youth organizer and educator here um, in Cambridge and in Boston, doing work around abolition, uh, non-carceral responses to harm, community care, transformative justice, a lot of different ways that we're rethinking about our community away from, again, these, these carceral or these oppressive systems and, and larger than also just police and prison. So good to be with you. I'm Jesse, staff at PBHA, and excited to get this conversation going. I see that you have an abolition sign even on your wall in the background. So thanks for being with us. Of course. And I'm Ahmed, I'm Student Development Chair at PBHA. I'm super excited to interview you and hear about your reflections on your work and the great impact that you can have on all of our listeners. So I guess that's a good place to start. To say that the summer was an eventful one is really understating how eventful the summer was. Um, how has your summer gone in the work that you do and in that organizing that you do, how has your summer been? I think one word that I've been hearing a lot this summer that I really want to uplift um, is abundance. I think for me, this summer has been a summer of abundance, a summer of community coming together, of protection, of understanding, and kind of this understanding, yeah, that we have been kind of shifting off a lot of these conversations or rearranging these conversations in ways that make us comfortable. Um, and with this summer, um, words no longer have those meanings. That action now has meaning. And so I thought that, that was, again, what was so abundant and so inspiring about the summer was how uh, youth were able to just take that action, but also the way that the community was able to support protesters and support organizers with mutual aid funds and car rides and folks who brought, you know, would just bring masks, bring, you know, hand sanitizer, bring cars, bring other kinds of protection to be able to make sure that in all forms, you know, protesters and folks on the ground who are doing this work, whether it was protesting or organizing or, you know, healing, were being supported. And so I think that that is really how I see the summer as, as a summer of abundance um, and a summer definitely of change, of transition, I think is, is a big one as well. But definitely, again, understatement to say anything, honestly, um, just because of how much was happening and is still happening because of what has been laid in the groundwork this summer. Yeah. Well, you were a major part of that. You were featured on Wicked Local as Activist of the Week for Cambridge uh, in late July. And also, like you said, are deeply embedded with friends and family and community here, not just work. But say a little bit more about what your role was, the organizations or newly formed groups during this time. Yeah. So. I wear a lot of different hats in my different organizing spaces, but I think that, again, is one of the beautiful things that came out of this summer was the interconnectedness of organizations and new collectives and, and new local communities that came up with the needs and the material conditions, you know, that they identified were needed for their, for their community and not for, you know, the community next door. It was very specific, and I think that's what's so important. So, yeah, in terms of working Cambridge, 
being a part of Community Forest Bias, which is a youth collective here that has been working around abolishing the police and reallocating those funds specifically to community-led initiatives um, around community safety response programs, around peer crisis centers, around support and de-escalation training for people in our community and around you know the defunding of police funds where they are definitely and absolutely not needed which is everywhere but especially places we can start to defund um, which are in cambridge specifically patrolling and the patrolling that cambridge police does which is 51 percent of their fiscal year budget and so with that predominantly of what patrolling is in cambridge for cambridge police is patrolling black and brown communities, public housing communities, and communities uh, that are battling homelessness. Um, and with that becomes obviously issues of altercations and police violence very, very regularly in Cambridge. And so this, these were things that we had seen, things that we identified as black and brown youth in Cambridge that we wanted to uplift, that we wanted to say that this was not something that is so far away or is this thing that doesn't really happen here in Cambridge, it does, you know, in 2018, there were, and there still are issues of police brutality that are going on here that are continuing to hurt our communities and not even in just the, the physical ways that our community is harmed by police and prison systems, but we can also talk about, you know, so many other ways that policing, um, in the ways of policing, even, you know, going as far as social work and mandated reporters, engage in that same issue of harmful carceral responses. Um, and so really trying to break that down um, with community forest bias and with Black Response, which has been doing very similar work um, around defunding the police in Cambridge and building these alternative structures and really making sure um, that we have community input in the community structures that are being made and that city council is proposing. But some of the other smaller well, not smaller at all, but some of the other non-Cambridge organizations that I work in um, are the FTP Collective, um, which is a collective in Boston that organized a demonstration around defunding the police and then has been doing work around community building and community care ever since um, in the summer. And we, you know, have been really pushing that idea, pushing city councilors um, in Boston and, you know, also just our government officials to really uh, stand with this message. And then lastly, a co-founder of myself and one of my very close friends of the Greater Boston Marxist Association, which is one of my longest running orgs that I have been in. And it's a collective of just myself and a couple other black and brown femme identifying folks that really wanted to identify the root causes of much of the harm that happens in our society, which is capitalism, imperialism, and colonialism. And so how do we not only work to educate our communities and our smaller local places and spaces on these issues, but how do we start to build power away from those systems? Um, and so we do that with, you know, mutual aid and direct reparations, as well as, again, political education. So those are definitely all the different hats that I'm wearing throughout the summer and in my organizing spaces. But yeah, definitely doing a lot and, and just trying to get all of that coming to fruition, coming together. But again, I think it's really great how all of these orgs have have been able to work together and being able to kind of come together in need. And as you said, just, you know, initiatives that aren't necessarily coming from an organization, but just from people who recognize needs in the community. Um, the Boston Mutual Aid Fund was uh, something that I was also an organizer within um, with two other amazing Muslim organizers. And we really worked to, uh, after the May 31st protest with the extreme violence that police showed on black youth in Boston, um, which I was actually there and at the time for, we realized that we needed more protection, more community support in bringing protesters to and from, you know, protests, but also to make sure that we're giving folks, you know, the adequate needs and organizers the adequate needs that they have during the pandemic. So, you know, just making sure that people have, you know, their rent paid and their medical bills paid, that they're getting food because organizers don't like to eat always. So like all of those things are, are super important that we also wanted to identify, which wasn't necessarily an organization, but just people in the community came together saying, we need to redistribute the funds that we know that we have, which is again, just super important. And I think is, is again, what I feel like has made this summer so abundant for me. I do want to follow up on the incredible amount of hats that you're wearing right now and the incredible amount of work that you're doing. 
you know, all of that, especially uh, coming from a perspective as a student, obviously, we're also carrying our identities, we're carrying our status as students, we're carrying our interactions with each other. So hearing from an organizer will probably be very helpful for anybody listening. Um, how do you ground yourself with all of the different hats that you wear and all the work? Like, that must be so stressful. How do you ground yourself? Um, I think it's definitely a practice. I don't have it down yet. <laughs> I'm still working on how to ground myself, but I definitely think for me, grounding always comes in your community and comes in the place where you are. I organize in Cambridge because this is where my conditions were made. And this is where, you know, I feel that the change needs to be made before I can go anywhere else. Um, and so I really urge people always to ground, um, not just always in the location, in the geographical space, but also in, in the space of community. Who are the people that make you feel safe and make you feel uplifted to be able to enact this change? Um, I think is definitely what grounds me is, is the people that I'm able to surround myself with who help me feel safe and imagine what that future can look like. Um, as well as like the geographical location of the people who have been here, my elders and, and, and the folks who really are able to give me that guidance as well, um, I think is kind of a balance of what grounds me. And yeah, always still working on that though. I definitely cannot say that I'm like always grounded. I think anybody who knows me also knows that I'm like running around all the time trying to ground myself. <laughs> so that's definitely like all, also something I'm always trying to practice. That's amazing. I, I think that's especially impactful coming from someone like you, knowing that like it's always a work in progress and you always need to develop it, but also leaning on others. I, I like that community emphasis. I do want to touch on a little bit of things that are going on at Harvard, specifically uh, with reference to our president, Larry Bacow. On May 30th, in the wake of George Floyd's tragic and totally preventable death at the hands of police officers, Larry Bacow sent out an email called What I Believe. That was a subject line. And in this very long email, he talks about things that he believes, how he believes that America should be a beacon of light to the rest of the world. He believes in the American dream. He believes in the constitution and in the 14th amendments guaranteed of equal protection of the laws. In this email, he makes no mention of the systemic harm that black Americans and black people in general face at the hands of police violence and at the hands of society at large. I guess in hearing those quotes, I. I wonder what your take on this, especially as somebody who's gone toe to toe with like administration, with like city council leaders. How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's, I, I don't want to say it's unsurprising, but it is unsurprising. Um, I think that what I also think of abundance in this summer is this idea that we've also been exposed to the abundance of people who understand, you know, what anti-racism, what anti-imperialism, what these words mean and what, the, what those things entail. And there are folks who are really using those words as a means for getting to that next step or making you know, a, a statement based in a liberal idea of progress that doesn't have action. Um, and I think, honestly, Cambridge is very good at that. Cambridge is very, very good. I lived here, my mom lived here, my grandmother lived here. We can all say that this is something that Cambridge has been very good at for a long time, which is liberal words rooted in the truth, which is that, you know, a lot of these systems are corrupt and that they need to be changed. And I think that in the ideas of like believing in the constitution and the American dream, I think, again, we are missing the idea that these structures were not built with Black people, people of color, folks with disabilities, LGBTQIA plus folks, folks who are not of Christian, religious identifying. These people were not here when a lot of these frameworks were being made. And so in my understanding, it's that these systems are not meant to serve me because they were not made for me. So it's not really able to say I believe in the constitution because how could I believe in the Constitution when the people who wrote the Constitution didn't even believe in me? And that's where I kind of am back and forth with that. And the American dream is a whole different story <laughs> that I'm sure everybody, I hope, you know, has that understanding of why the American dream question might be a little bit more flawed um, in the understanding that, you know, our system is not based on a free society or a society in which you are able to work hard and get the needs that you know, your, your life entails. We, we don't live in a world like that and we don't live in a society like that. And I think, you know, again, Cambridge is a great microcosm 
for us to talk about how a lot of this is said nationally and a lot of this is said globally, but a lot of what happens in Cambridge is so overlooked and how this is actually affecting Cambridge Black folks, the, the Black communities and Brown communities in Cambridge, the folks who are, you know, struggling with homelessness in Cambridge, what these words and what these sentiments actually mean to us and to many of the folks here, I think is also what's really forgotten in these statements that get released by city councilors or by presidents or I think that's always the people that are left out of those conversations and, and continue to be and I think that is where a lot of us are kind of coming out and, and saying no, this system, you know, does not serve us and it will never serve us because it's it, in its foundation, it didn't serve us. So how does that work? And so I definitely think that, you know, with that, it, it takes that analysis. Um, and, and those are definitely all the things that I kind of think about when I hear statements using those kind of words, but always also trying to ground in the understanding that, you know, we're all at different places and we're all learning and going through these different awakenings of political consciousness and of our own, you know, material conditions at our own pace. And some folks will get there and some folks won't. But that, you know, solidarity is definitely, for me, the most important part throughout all of that. And especially of folks who might not have that power as the president to, to be in solidarity with each other um, and to be able to uplift the folks, not only, you know, just in Harvard, but the folks that will be affected outside of Harvard in the Cambridge community as well, to build that solidarity. That's kind of PBHA's thing on campus and with the students who feel that way the most. Um, and I want to ask about, you know, where PBHA fits in next, but an unplanned follow-up because I really like this idea of this spectrum of awakening. I think that's the purpose of reflection. Exactly. You're, you're welcoming people to come in at different points. It's so futurist. It's so advanced compared to the binary thinking that we've seen of either you're an activist or you're not or either you're on board or you're not. And so if you can say a little bit more about that spectrum of awakening and people coming in at different points, even though there is some judgment of, you just haven't got, quite gotten there yet, yeah. uh, but there is ongoing work, not an end point at which it's done. So anyway, that's a long-winded question, just expanding on the, the spectrum of awakening and then I'll ask my next. Yeah, no, of course. I think. For me, it's definitely, you know, something that I obviously cannot take credit for. So many of my role models, especially, you know, Franz Fanon spoke specifically about the idea of a double consciousness and this idea of like constant awakening that black people and folks who are oppressed and he calls it the colonized person goes through where we are constantly waking up to these different systemic issues that are within our society because they're so linked. And so understanding the injustice of being a black person, understanding the injustice of being a woman, and then having the awakening and intersection of the understanding of being a black woman in a society that doesn't respect either. I think is like where those awakenings come from. And I think it can also come from the other side of you weren't exposed to, to a certain identity growing up, or you, weren't, you were only exposed to the culture in a certain way. And so with that, the awakening, I always say comes with understanding. I usually will not let people into my space if I do not feel that I will be safe. But if that safety is under wraps, I am engaged in having conversations with people no matter where they're at. Because I do think that there are people who genuinely are taught that whiteness and the idea of white supremacy is okay. <laughs> and that it is a you know, system that has always been here. And that's, and that's truly an idea that is taught to us. And it is taught to us at such a young age to which even folks who are not white think that whiteness has always existed and this idea of white supremacy has always existed. But really also being able to talk to white folks and non-black folks about that experience and about that history and about that awakening and understanding that within this idea of what blackness is, we are also then creating an idea of what all these other ideas are and in that negative connotation. And so all that to say the awakenings are kind of happening, I think at all points, and it's definitely really hard even in explaining it. I feel like I'm not giving the best explanation, but I do think that when we're thinking about these ideas of awakening, it's super important about meeting people where they're at and, and thinking about where folks have learned their history before 
this space that they're coming into. And so like if all you've learned about black history is your public high school or if, unless you went to a freedom school, your high school in America, you're probably not going to have, you're probably going to have a very anti-black lens of black history. And that's not you saying that you are racist. You are just raised in a racist society. Racism has been embedded in you. And so that is something now that you need to unlearn. And like, I really like Jesse that it is a place of constant reflection and it's a place of constantly looking back and always being a learner being, oh wait, that's, that's actually not right anymore. We actually didn't, we got past that. We got over that conflict. We can't do that anymore because we've now said that this isn't okay, you know, or that this is who we stand for. And so I do think that, that is really important. And those awakenings also come with like, solidarity and sympathy when you learn that like the struggle that we're facing here and the struggle that people face in Palestine are not different struggles and that they are very similar struggles and that the struggles are actually interconnected and they help each other so how do we actually build that solidarity as well and I think that also brings the awakening that like none of us are the most I mean yes anti-blackness is a scale of oppression but there is no like oppression olympics you know we all have privilege and we all face some form of oppression and within that we all need to understand and have solidarity with each other to like raise that consciousness that's kind of my idea of like awakening there's nuggets in there for sure i love it and we're engaged in that process that you're describing around awakening and knowing that uh, we have something to give but also don't have it all figured out so for a moment ask you to consult with us. You're already doing work with 10 other organizations, but BHA had its own sort of commitments that it put out and ask for you know, your reaction to a few words I'll read and also what we need to do. I think a lot of people are coming out with the awakening, but then don't know the next steps. So saying all the right words, perhaps calling bullshit, but not doing the action of the calling bullshit. I think PBHA is doing a lot of action and we also need to keep reflecting and that's part of the point of this, this show. So here's just a few things I pulled out from what PBHA sent to its solidarity network. We recognize that healing desperately needs to occur. However, that cannot happen without those with power and privilege, especially white Americans and non-black people of color, leaning into introspection and discomfort. As people of privilege, we must hear and give ourselves to the causes of the Black community. We commit to centralizing Black narratives and voices while combating white supremacy and racism. I think we said all the right things. What do we do? What do you see in that that you can say, all right, now do this? I would definitely say in terms of conversations like this, you know, a podcast and conversations being able to get folks who are in the community, specifically black and brown organizers who have been doing this work, you know, longer, I'm, I'm only like 23, but there are people who have been doing this for like, you know, a while who are, who are, who have been here. So really being able to bring in folks, you know, from Gory House and Blackyard Arts and all these amazing black organizations that are really laying the groundwork for these ideas of community care and of black popular education and of these different ideas and different frameworks of rethinking how our society can engage without systems of white supremacy or exploitation or hierarchies, you know? And so I definitely think engaging in those programs, I think is so great. All of them have volunteer opportunities. And I think that, you know, is always super great. But I also think it's also something that I really, um, I'm trying to stress is the importance of the individual introspection of this and that, you know, the organization and the, or the collective or the association can do that work. But if it's not being done on a personal level, it really isn't, it really isn't going anywhere because you, you know, you are the organization when you go out, that is who you are. And so when you're having those conversations, even with your friends and your family, it's really important to engage in standing firm in that solidarity um, and really allowing other folks to come and learn more about where you're standing and where you're grounded because that is again where where you know you said is is centralizing you know black voices centralizing you know the black community here also yeah definitely think about it in an individual sense and how folks can individually separate and start to move away from the ideas of specifically white supremacy 
in their spaces, um, however that may look like. And I think that can work in a lot of different places. And I think, again, it's like a balance of like being in an institution and like also trying to do that. And like as somebody who just graduated, that is something that like really weighed on me when I was in school. Definitely trying to find that balance and like, I, again, like no ethical consumption under capitalism. Like we know this, but like at the same time, we also have to be very wary of that and understanding of that. Um, and so I definitely think like where, where we can, you know, find those, those places to give solidarity within the institution um, is always really important. But I think the personal, the personal is political, you know? And so, so really trying to ground it in the personal and ground it in the everyday conversations and in, and in the way that you're changing even your language and your habits, you know, changing the words from donating to redistributing, you know, changing the words from charity to mutual aid. How, how can we even change the language that we're using to really ground in that idea of solidarity and that we are all, we all deserve self-determination and we all deserve that freedom and, and, and how grounded that is. So, so that's just some of the things I think about and, and definitely super, you know, main action steps and always about the political being personal for me. You actually led right into what we were going to ask next, which is if you could have specifics, like if you could give us action items to the people listening, what should we do? How should we follow up about learning or doing more action in relation to local abolition and mutual aid? What can we do? Definitely redistributing funds. We, Community Forest Bias and Black Response, having a Cambridge Mutual Aid Fund that we have had for most of the summer, supporting families um, of low income and black and brown communities in Cambridge during the COVID-19 crisis. And we have also been, you know, uplifting other great folks who have been doing this work. Again, Gory House, Blackyard Arts, and the Cambridge and Latin BSU are doing some really amazing things in terms of just listening to the voices here to really understand what's happening and, and what, what the actual asks of the people here are. Um, because I, it is really important, um, even, you know, as organizers, some of the first things we always, not even some, the first thing we always try to do is getting out and asking people in the community what they see, what they need, and what they want. Because us is irrelevant. If we're trying to fight for other people and we really want to uplift other people, it can't be about, you know, what we see or what we might think is best. It's about what the community thinks is best and following them. So I definitely think, like, absolutely listen to the Cambridge Black and Brown community, listen to the folks who are, you know, speaking about these issues and are really trying to uplift it. And on top of that, yeah, redistribute your wealth. If you have wealth, redistribute it, <laughs> do it, I dare you. As well, really think about where your life and where your privilege lies. And not even just in terms of race, but in terms of all the different privileges that you can have and think about how we can, you can use those privileges as power to help folks who don't have those privileges. And that can be something really as simple as like, you know that you are a white person and you know that police probably will not arrest you, learn how to do de-arrest tactics and go to protest with your friends. So that when they are in those situations, you know how to, you know de-arrest tactics, you know? It can even be something like that. Learn how to be a marshal, you know? learn de-escalation support or anything like that. I even think, you know, even just the ways that we interact with each other, I think is so important in how we build and how we, you know, create these spaces. But also, yeah, redistribute your material conditions. If you can, donate, 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 and not even just, or sorry, redistribute, redistribute, redistribute. That was even my, see, have to like go back with that. You always have to fix yourself. And with that, not even just in terms of monetary like redistributing right like we're thinking about food sovereignty we're thinking about you know all of these different ways that we're engaging in that work so to really really think about where you have power and where your power is that's awesome advice for students coming from all over and many students are who are engaged specifically in pbha and alumni who are listening are interested in the cambridge community as much as you go and listen, you then have a lot of different needs in mind. Uh, give us a few that you have heard, uh, specifics around uh, mutual aid and family support, specifics around police and abolition that 
you're hearing bubbling up that people can get on board with? So definitely right now, um, in terms of mutual aid and food sovereignty, Cambridge City Growers is an amazing organization that has been doing amazing work around food sovereignty for black, brown, and low-income communities in Cambridge, um, and always are willing to help and teach and get more volunteers to help really redistribute funds and, and build that up. So I would always say to check them out. They are always doing work on Saturdays um, in the mornings. And so to be able to just go out with them in the mornings on Saturday to just be able to really do that work, I think is also a great action step of, you know, learning more about food sovereignty, getting more into it, learning more about the education, and also, again, really meeting people from the Cambridge community. I would also, again, always say um, uplifting the mutual aid fund uh, as much as you can, really working towards that. I know Community Forest Bias, we have tabling events bi-weekly <laughs> um, around Cambridge. And so with that, uh, we also try to get uh, redistributed material goods in terms of like winter stuff and fall stuff that people might need, books and, and back to school supplies and, and stuff like that. So definitely looking out for mutual aid opportunities for you to be able to redistribute. And in terms of the abolition work and the defunding work that's happening in Cambridge, absolutely go look up the Black response in Cambridge, go look up all the work that we've been doing, the petitions that we've been signing and the actions we have. We have been and are working to, you know, really implement a community safety response program that is completely away from Cambridge police and is really rooted in the community collectives, organizations and leaders uh, that have been doing this great work um, around supporting black and brown folks and low-income folks in, in Cambridge. And so to really also support that work, I think is, is so important in, the, in what is happening right now, um, because it is obviously super important to get rid of the police completely and get rid of the prison industrial complex, but to also really build those systems and build the, well, what do we have instead? Like, how, how do we exist without a prison? Here's how we exist without prisons, a community safety response program. So really giving people answers and engage kind of discussions about what this is. And, and we have and we'll be leading and I'm going to be leading workshops around, you know, how we see Cambridge implementing this response program with the city council and with community organizations and collectives and leaders. Um, so definitely looking out for those as well as ways that folks can really start getting involved and learning more about what is happening um, in Cambridge over the past couple months. Um, we're definitely going to try to get a workshop together, like anyone who's interested in the more immediate uh, future. And, and obviously virtual can be anywhere in the country, right? Um, to get into those more specifics. On a reflective tip, maybe because we're, we're focused on that introspection for the podcast content, for those who are also reflecting on their summer with a bit of hope and abundance mixed with the world's gone to shit. What do we, what do we do now? Um, do you have any practices that help you put it in perspective? Do you have any advice or questions to pose to get people thinking in a reflective, holistic way on all the, the action and the possibilities and the oppression and the injustice? I want to uplift a really amazing exercise that this educator, her name is Saskia. She is an amazing educator in Boston uh, who does anti-racist work. And something that I do a lot, she did it at one uh, demonstration um, and, and led us in a grounding exercise. And ever since then, I, I use it a lot for myself. Um, and this idea that you're closing your eyes and you're kind of taking deep breaths, you know, in through your nose and out through your mouth. And as you're breathing, you're really thinking about and envisioning, you know, not for, you know, what other people might think or what the census of like what you've read might say, but what does liberation look like to you? Like, what does that look like physically, emotionally? What does it smell like? What does it feel like? What are those initial feelings that you're getting when you're thinking about feeling the ideas of liberation? And I think with that, it really grounds me in the people that I see and the feelings that I get and the joy that I feel. 
to really bring myself back to the spaces that ground me and that fulfill me. I think for me, it's definitely always, you know, that, that solidarity and liberation as driving forces for me. But also, you know, like just really engaging in stepping away, I think is also like completely okay. Um, I also think like there's this idea of like productivity that is ingrained in our mind by white supremacy that like if you are not organizing, and this is also something that I struggle with a lot, but like if you are not organizing or you are not working every single day of every single week for the rest of your life, you are not productive and you are not of use to anybody in the society, right? Like that's what capitalism like tells us. And so like really also like <clears throat> trying to, you know, decolonize our mind of that, of this idea that like, I can take a week and just really engage in being Queen Cheyenne and what Queen Cheyenne needs on a physical level, on an emotional level. And that in and of itself is an act of liberation. You know, that that in and of itself is liberatory practice. Um, I think is also really important for people to remember that working yourself to the ground is absolutely not how I envision my liberation, you know, and not how I envision anybody else's liberation. So to really think about that, I think is, is just a grounding exercise that I really love and, and kind of helps me um, reevaluate, yeah, like my principles when I'm thinking about, you know, like, why am I working so hard? Or why am I doing these types of things? Or talking to only these types of people, you know? I think about what does my liberation look like? And it kind of helps me, again, ground myself out of that sometimes nihilistic feeling of like, the two party system won't save us <laughs> feeling. Nope, it won't. <laughs> Still reeling from Tuesday night. Shout out to Joy and that that's still with us, all of us that um, can capture it. And shout out to Black Joy in particular and Black women leading the way on that to remind us that that's a huge, huge part of any collective future that's worth living. You asked a great question of students and of anybody, what does the world look like? Do you have other questions you would like to ask us, like we could actually talk or just that you would throw out to people to engage with? Um, definitely thinking about that. I know for, you know, I, I always just definitely like the exercise of like naming these things in your own words. Like what, what does abolition, when you write it out, not, you know, Angela Davis's definition or Asada's definition or anybody's that what is, you know, Ahmed's definition of abolition. And, and that I think is also really important. What is your definition of liberation? What is your definition of, of you know, what a community can look like after, after oppression or after systemic, you know, oppression, you know? I think those are, are really important questions just to engage in, um, in general, in, in thinking about where we go from here. Because I also think, you know, we, many of us, um, folks of us who are not white, but I even think, you know, folks of us who are, liberation is not something that we are regularly seeing right it's not something that we are regularly interacting with and so in imagining and by naming for yourself what liberation is you are really in my opinion working to materialize that here you know working to get that experience and get that naming here in this world and i think that that's so important in the understanding because if your you know understanding of abolition is not only just engaging in prison abolition, but the complete dismantling of all systems of harm, then we're, you know, we're, we're talking about such a larger system and that causes you know, an even bigger imagining. And I think you know, that can be so exciting and, and you know, so, so kind of mind boggling and hard for people. But I definitely just encourage folks to really sit with these words and not with the definitions, not with the conversation and just really sit with the word and really just think about what this word means to you. And if it doesn't have a meaning to you, then to really like start thinking about that, start thinking about what, where this word can start having, having you know, some meaning to you and bring you that same kind of feeling of joy or feeling of liberation. Because I hear these words and they make me smile. You know, they make me physically happy when I hear these words of liberation and of, you know, of community care. These words genuinely make me happy. And so I think like being able to really embody that is so important and like, pushing that forward yeah I, I know those like kind of weren't questions but like you know general ideas of like questions that I definitely think like folks should always be sitting with 
I do think those count as questions because once you start thinking about what your definitions of things are, you ask yourself those questions like instantly. Yeah. Actually, it reminds me of another interview that we did on this, actually the same episode of this podcast where we were talking with people from our summer urban program and the directors who were reflecting on their time who are engaged in youth work. And they talked about having to not simplify these very complex concepts down for children because it was such it was so important for them to engage with it so yeah you asking those questions and thinking about what like what my personal definition of liberation is really made me think about that interview because it made me think about like how do I explain this to my little sister how do I explain this to the youth in my community and you know like that's what they did at SUP this summer which is amazing I think Um, great um and I think like that that's even like that phrase of like if you can't explain it to a two-year-old like you're not doing it right like that that I love that like I think that's perfect I do think that you know a a five-year-old or like a younger person of any age really can understand that we do not live in a just system you know I think that is something that can be explained and, and is very apparent and I think again like goes into awakenings again going back to that full circle of like I think there are even like awakenings that you have when you're a kid um, and there are awakenings that you have when you're at a really young age that you can't, you don't know how to name yet because you don't have the words, right? But imagine like if somebody had given you those words when you were like seven, um, when I was like first understanding what anti-blackness was, but I didn't have the word anti-blackness. I barely even had the word of racism, but like imagine if I had had those words when I was seven, when I was eight, when I was first experiencing those, you know, things in my, and in, in, you know, my first interactions in school, Imagine if I had had those words to be able to really, you know, verbalize my, my experiences and verbalize that. And I think, like you were just saying, that's so important. And I think that's why popular education as well is so important in like engaging in where folks are at and in the language and in the understanding and in the experiences that folks have. Um, because that's also, you know, the way that we like build solidarity is again, meeting folks where they're at. Um, not, yeah, not just like with their experiences, but also, yeah, like with, with what they know and how to explain explain it to all of us because we all we all learned it in different ways you know we all learned about these concepts in different ways too so it is super important yeah but i i, I really want to uplift that point too because i think that's so important queen cheyenne i want to thank you so much for all of your wisdom and all of your actionables because your experience is so appreciated and all of the advice on the entire call to action that you gave um, I think will be super helpful for all of us here at Harvard, at PBHA, and in Greater Cambridge, and everybody who's listening to this. So yeah, I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Really excited to build with y'all and like to be here. Very excited to continue that process, and all of us in solidarity. You know, very excited. This is the start of a conversation. We could keep going for a while. Oh, man, thank you. And I think getting a getting that textbook rewritten for kids, that's a great project for for the long term of these things that we're working on and, and you're working on locally. Yeah, PBH is behind it. We're we're excited for what's to come next. And yeah, with that, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us, to share your knowledge and to share ways that we can all get involved. This will definitely be, in my opinion, one of the more impactful episodes of our podcast because we have tangible things that someone can listen to this and the minute it turns off they can go and actually do something to contribute to mutual aid or local abolition so with that thank you i feel very inspired and i'm sure everyone listening to this feels very inspired as well